obviously all of your neighbors are over 90, so you got great water there. Uh, oh, wow, I mean, we, if you want to live long, move next to Peggy. Uh, so, uh, good morning. My name is Gary Vermas. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the elders here at Aspen Grove. Uh, I come all the time with my family, my wife, who's here, and our, uh, we have 12 children, as a lot of you know, uh, which is crazy. Uh, anyway, we'll jump right into it today, Mark 2 and Mark 3, uh, what we want to go through the scriptures. And so, as we read through, we're going to read through nine different, very short scenes and as we read through these scenes, I want you to think about Jesus as you, as a normal human going about his life, right? So we're going to read these scenes and just think about each one of these scenes. So we start off in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, a few days later, oh, it's a different version up there, so uh, I, I will read off that one. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door, while he was preaching the God's word to them. Oh, sorry. Four men. Oh, I'm going to hold off for a second. All right, so Capernaum, just to let you know, is a city. It's a village uh, on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. It had a population of about 1,500 people, uh, and it was only a couple miles away from the city of Bethsaida, which is the home of Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. So Jesus chooses Capernaum, as the center of his public ministry in Galilee once he leaves the very small town of Nazareth. Now, if you look in verse 1, the Bible says that the people heard that Jesus had come home. They use language basically saying uh, the people there, Jesus spent so much time in the city that people called it his home. Some people even hypothesize that Jesus owned a house there uh, and that this house is his house. But that's, there's not a lot of great proof for that. Anyway, people said this is his home. The Bible says it's home. So Jesus is at home, just like you're at home, right? And it says, and he's at home, he's talking, he's eating, he's spending time with his friends. And so many people come into his home that there's no room left in his house, right? So much so that they're crowded outside the front door. There's, there's not even room outside the front door. So Whatever Jesus was doing, these people interrupted Jesus. They invaded his personal space. They invited himself into their home, right? They're bothering him. Uh, and the question we've got to ask is, how does Jesus react to this? What does he do, right? How, what would you do if people just suddenly filled your living room and you had no room, right? Verse 2 says, he preached the word to them. So he goes back to the Old Testament scriptures, and he teaches everybody about himself and about God. So then we look at verse 3. Four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on the mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. So now again, this is scene two. Right? Same scene, same area, but Jesus is preaching and teaching the people that have invited themselves into his home. He's in the middle of a lesson, or he's answering questions. Four men come to his house. They can't get in the front door, so they take the stairs, which are traditionally on the side of, the, of his house. They go up to the roof, and they proceed to dig a hole through the thatched roof above him. Again, so they ruin the roof, either his roof or his friend's roof. Right? They ruin the roof, and then He's trying to speak, and they lower a paralyzed man down in front of him. 
I don't know about you, I get angry when one of my kids touches the thermometer in my house. Like, are you crazy? Like that is set by Jesus himself. You're not allowed to touch that. Like, what are you, what are you out of your mind? I can't imagine if somebody dug a hole in my roof and dropped someone down. My reaction would not be, oh, your sins are forgiven. I'd be like, what the? You know, I'd be so angry, right? How did Jesus react? He saw their faith. He saw the man's faith. Your sins are forgiven. Hey, when people bother us, hurt us, insult us, frustrate us, is your first reaction to forgive them? Say, hey, you're forgiven. We look on. This is scene three. Again, we're going to go through all these scenes, and I have one point at the end, so it won't be long. Um, In verse six, but some of the teachers of the religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. And so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven or stand up? Pick up your mat and walk. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat and walked out through the stunned onlookers. So now, again, Jesus is preaching and teaching to a group of people that invited him. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. So in the wrong spot there. Jesus is interacting with these men, okay? He's observing the faith of the four men on the roof. Uh, He has forgiven the sins of the crippled man who came down through a hole in the roof. And pushing against him is a room filled with people that he did not invite over to his house. There's an enormous amount of stimuli going on here. And I can't imagine personally how I would have handled all those people in my house. I mean, all of that. And still Jesus, through all of this, has the emotional fortitude to look around the room and perceive the criticisms and the teachers of the law. He can see on their faces the critical, nasty thoughts, right? He's doing so much good in this scene, and yet he still has to put up with this garbage of these people being nasty to him. So how does he react? What does he do? How does Jesus react to the situation? Jesus does a miracle, and he proves to everybody that he's God. Jesus freely gives the people their chance to believe in him. He continues to show the people who God really is. In that moment, he's not distracted, and he loves people so deeply in a moment that I know I would have missed. There's no way through all of that that I would be focused still on loving the people sitting there. We look at the next scene, scene four, uh, verse 13. Uh, Then Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught crowds that were coming to him. Bible said here, this version says that a large crowd came to him and he began to teach. So here we have a new scene. Jesus goes to the lake. He's walking around the lake. Uh, He's trying to walk by himself. Maybe he's with some friends. He's talking and a large group of people come and they surround him. They bother him and he stops. How does Jesus react? He, uh, He stops what he's doing and he begins to teach them the truth about God. Scene five, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, uh, as sitting as a tax collector's uh, booth. Follow me, be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. What's interesting here, Jesus finishes teaching the crowd, then he goes on a walk, and this is actual the first 
thing, the first thing that Mark records, that's not a reaction. This is an actual proactive uh, action that Jesus does. And he keeps it very simple. He looks at Levi and says, follow me. That's it. Done. Right? Very simple. Now we look on to the next scene, scene six. And we're uh, verse 15. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus's followers. But when the teachers of the religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people do not need a doctor, sick people do. I have not, I have come to call those who think they, I have not, I've come uh, to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Jesus is at having dinner at Levi's house. He's sitting around, he's relaxing, he's eating. And there are many people that continue to come over to this dinner. Again, imagine it's you. And the people, Jesus is trying to enjoy time with some people. And again, uh, more people come and they're invading his personal space. Just, just, just pushing against them, right? They're just all there. The teachers of the law now proceed to talk behind Jesus' back. They're being critical, manipulative. The Pharisees are trying to get Jesus' disciple to be critical of him. Like, what is your guy doing? He's, this is awful. He's eating with these people. You know, and he's, Jesus is dealing with all of this. Uh, and how does he react? He teaches a powerful lesson on humility that is basically the cornerstone of Christianity. Every day as a Christian, you must understand that you are sick, you're nothing without God. There's no selfish, righteous acts that's going to get you into a relationship with God. One of the greatest teachings of Christianity that we've known all of our life, Jesus gives to a group of people who are being terrible to him, right? Like he's being, just being in such a terrible situation and he spews out one of the greatest teachings we have in Christianity. Look at the next scene, scene seven. Now John's disciples, uh, once when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? Jesus replied, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them. But someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Besides, who would, pat, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins for the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. In this scene, we're not really sure where Jesus is at this moment. But some people just come up to him, and they ask him a question. It seems to be a critical question. It could be an honest question, but it seems to have a cringe of self-righteousness. Why are your disciples not fasting? You know, it's a critical question, right? And you ever get those? We enjoy those, right? Why are you doing that? It's like, shut up. You know, that's how we want to act, you know? <laughs> you go, yeah, you know, that's how we think, right? How does Jesus react? He teaches a powerful lesson on worship and humility. That's his reaction to someone giving him a nasty, critical question, right? It's a lesson we've heard all of our lives. It's an unbelievable teaching, and it just comes out of Jesus when someone is being critical of him. It's crazy to me. You think about that and think about yourself, how you react and how Jesus reacts. And it's like, oh man, I got a long way to go. Scene eight. 
We're almost done with the scenes and we're going to wrap, tie it all together. One Sabbath day, as Jesus walking through the grain fields, some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. But the Pharisees said to Jesus, now they're coming directly to Jesus, right? They're, they're just complaining right to him. Look, why are they breaking the law, harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Jesus responds. He says to them, haven't you ever read the scriptures, what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God during the days when Abathar was high priest, and he broke the law by eating sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Jesus is walking through the grain fields. He's with his friends. He's trying to enjoy some time, right? Pharisees approach Jesus with another judgmental, self-righteous question. Why, why are they doing that? What's wrong with you, right? Just nastiness again. How does Jesus react? Well, he recalls what I consider an obscure story from 1 Samuel 21, and he's like, and he teaches a lesson about not missing the point. And he teaches them, God is so much bigger than rules that you follow. Again, one of the greatest teachings of Christianity here, and it just spews out of Jesus's mouth in response to him being treated like trash. Like he's treated terribly, and he just comes out with the greatest teaching ever. The last scene I want to look at, and we're going to tie it all up. Another time Jesus, uh, Jesus went into the synagogue again. <clears throat> and notice the man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a deformed hand, come, stand in front of everyone. Then he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save a life or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. And he looked at them, looked around at them angrily, and he was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. At once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how they would kill Jesus. Jesus enters a synagogue on a Sabbath, just like you came into church to worship today. Jesus sees all these people there, and they're watching him closely. He knows that they have stubborn, unbelieving hearts. They are not wide-eyed and fascinated and excited, you know, the, at the prospect of learning more about God. They are nasty. They are angry. They are self-righteous. And after everything is over, this scene is over, they decide to kill Jesus, right? That's how angry they are. The Bible says... Here's, here's a great indication. Jesus is also angry. He's angry too. He's deeply sad in my, this translation, distressed at these people. He's emotional as well. How does Jesus react? He heals the man, makes that man's life better forever. He teaches the people a lesson so they could better understand the heart of God. He does a miracle to prove that he is God and then he gives them a path to believing. He even gives these people a path to believing. I mean, he doesn't tell them to go, you know, whatever I might tell them to do. He's, he gives them a chance to believe. See, life is all about interruptions. And, and what's funny is that the best stuff spiritually happens 
when during these unplanned, unexpected, and usually unwelcome moments in our lives. Last week, I want to tell you a story, I, I had to go to the gastroenterologist because it's that fun time in my life when I'm 47 uh, and I have a family history of people with colon cancer. So I have to go there and, you know, get a colonoscopy and, and talk to the doctor. And so it's a random Wednesday and I go to the doctor's office and I, well, let me preface by saying I'm a very busy human. I mean, I know all of us are. Uh, I'm CEO of an international architectural and engineering firm. I've started a college, construction college, with my wife, and I have 12 children. I have way too much going on. So the last thing I have time for is to sit in the doctor's office for 30 minutes and wait for a group of highly unorganized people to shuffle me back to some small closet where I have to sit on a piece of deli sandwich paper, right, and wait 34 minutes for another unorganized doctor to come in, right, who doesn't know what's going on at all. And I'm always wondering and angry about, can't someone fix this? Can't they just get me when I come in? Like, why do we have to do all the waiting? Why am I in a closet? Why am I alone? Why do we have this paper? It's awful, right? All of those things. But I do it. And I wait, and I wait, and I wait. Finally, the doctor comes in. He's a really nice guy. And he wants to talk about life. Like we're two college friends that haven't seen each other in 30 years. And he's talking and talking and talking. And he asks me all these questions about my life and my family and my kids. And I want to remind you, all I want to do is leave. That's it. I have a hundred things that got to get done. And with every sentence that man says, I'm slowly dying inside. <laughs> and I tell the doctor, because I'm being cordial, yeah, I have 12 kids. 10 are adopted, blah, blah, blah. Just in passing, like, shut up, do the thing, let's go. You're a doctor, I'm an engineer, done. High five, Let, leave me alone. <laughs> and he stops me. Wait, you have 10 adopted kids? Yes. And he says, hold on. I said, no, 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 please, God, no. <laughs> and he opens the door, and he calls in all the staff. Hey, Nancy, Bill, got to come over here. Got to come up. Come here. You got to hear this story. So now I'm in the small closet room, right? And... Uh, and, and, uh, and I'm telling the story. I mean, so he calls in all the staff, right? The nurses, the administrator, I think even the janitor came in. They're all there. And I'm in this very small room and the, all these people telling them about my life and my family. And the question and answer session of this ad hoc seminar that we just started goes on for 30 minutes. It's awesome, right? I get to share I'm a Christian. I shared about my life. I shared about Aspen Grove Church. I shared everything. They wanted to know everything. They were so interested. And all I kept thinking is, don't you people have jobs? I, like, what about all the other poor souls sitting on the deli paper, right? And I have to stress, I didn't want to be there at all. I shared about Jesus in my family, in my life. And, and as I'm doing it, the list of things that have to get done are running through the back of my mind. And then, you know, I wasn't spiritual. Like, I hope these guys hear about Jesus. I'm like, shut up. Stop asking questions. If I woke up that morning and said, I'm going to go share with 10 strangers about my life, I couldn't do it, right? You couldn't do that. You couldn't reproduce 10 people in a small room all listening to you, right? That would never have happened. God brought these people to me at the perfectly wrong time. It was a terrible time for me. And he expected my reaction to be like Jesus. He did. He said, you're going to teach like Jesus teached. You see, we just read nine stories about the daily life of Jesus. Eight stories 
were about how Jesus reacted to the ways people treated him. His reactions always included teaching people the truth about God, forgiving their sins, doing good, doing miracles so that people would have a chance to believe. His reaction to all these situations was always teaching, 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 right? He took every situation, he turned it around, he made it a spiritual lesson. His reactions show the amazing depth of his love for people. His reactions show an incredible level of self-control and his unwavering faith and love for God. And don't be confused. His reaction, uh, I mean, all of the negative interactions were directed at Jesus. In my story, the people were nice, right? But in his stories, they weren't even nice. Most of these attacks were directly at Jesus, or they were attacks on his personal space. Everything came directly at him. And his responses were always about truth and about love and about God. He was angry. He was distressed. He was bothered. He was inconvenienced. He was put out. And his responses are what changed the world for 2,000 years. It's crazy, actually. We live in a Christian world, very business, publicized Christian world, uh, that talks very often about us being proactive. 10 habits to make you more effective. Five ways to improve your discipleship. 16 programs you can start at your church uh, to be more forceful and bold. And I, I don't think any of that's bad stuff, but I believe my, my one point for us today, if our reactions to people in situations were more like Jesus, I believe we'd be far more effective in changing the world for God and teaching people about Jesus. I think our reactions are what really change people, not our programs. Jesus had the mindset, always, how can I serve people right now? Even when he was hanging on the cross, he was forgiving people. He was sharing with the thief next to him. He was even taking care of them, his mother, right? His reactions to those situations. I mean, think about how you react when you're in pain. Like, I am not that guy. I'm like, ah, leave me alone, right? Or you're sick. Think about when you're sick. Are you serving others? You're like, serve me, serve me, right? Well, it's, it's unbelievable. I think God desperately wants to use us. He does. He, he, that's his plan. He has an awesome plan for you, for me, for our lives to change the world. But he can't use us if we miss opportunities that come our way. You don't have to go search for them. Just live your life. Get out there. Remain present. God wants to use us. Just think about it for a minute. We're going to kind of wrap up soon, but let's all take a moment and be honest with ourselves and think about how we react when people come at us. How we react when people come to us with negative thoughts, words, or situations. Let's be honest with ourselves. We get bothered, we get angry, or we get hurt and upset, saddened, frustrated, insulted, exasperated, or self-righteous. We can't believe the person has the audacity to treat us that way. Or, or we get sad. The world is such a negative, evil place, and then we shut down, and we just want to be angry and alone, and we want to feel sorry for ourselves. And then we respond in every one of those situations with all of those emotions. And often our responses do not look like Jesus. I mean, don't look like the nine scenes we saw there. Look at the way we respond to our husbands or to our wives when they come at us, or our children, or our brothers and sisters. We react with so much emotion, so much negativity, we bite their heads off when they ask us a simple question, right? We're like, ah, how dare you, right? Look at the way we respond to our coworkers when we feel bothered or frustrated. Look at the way we respond to people on Facebook. 
I mean, the posts, the reposts, the responses on Facebook of Christians are nothing like Jesus would do ever, ever. He would never say some of the things that we post or repost ever in a million years. He would never do that. He's focused on loving people and forgiving people and teaching people the truth. Jesus was confronted with garbage all the time. I would say the same garbage that comes at us. Actually, I would argue that Jesus' garbage was much worse than us because they, in the end, killed him. Nobody, as much garbage as they're giving you, is trying to kill you. I mean, not right now, at least. Maybe. But if there is someone trying to kill you, come talk to me afterwards. You need help. All right. Uh, but, but he taught people the truth about God's word. He, when he was pushed, he taught the Bible. That was his go-to move, the Bible, right? The scriptures. He knew it. He was quick to forgive people. He responded to negativity by doing good so that people could see God. His reactions, the words that came out of his mouth when he was pushed to the limits were teachings about the almighty God. It's crazy. Jesus lived his life fishing, attending synagogue, eating dinner, snacking with his friends, drinking wine. He went about his life and he responded to the needs and he taught the truth. That's what he did. And that's what he calls us to do. So lastly, if you're going to be successful, if you're going to have successful reactions, you got to follow two rules, two very simple rules. <clears throat> One, you must be aware of yourself and aware of others around you. That's the first rule. Second, you must have wisdom to know what people need. In order to remain aware of yourself, you got to cut out the negative, self-focused, inner dialogues, securities about the present world around you. You know, all that inner talk that's telling you all those negative thoughts, you know what that is? It's selfishness. And you need to repent. I need to get out of it. No, stop feeling sorry for yourself and repent of all that negative stuff you're telling yourself. Because that stuff is stopping you from being aware of what's going on, right? It's all about you. Every day, it's all about you. It's all about me. We miss opportunities because we're so self-focused. We allow our emotions to lead our thoughts and discussions and not God's word. Our emotions run our life, not God's word. And then we miss it all. And then we're like, let's start a program. No, no, just, just repent of the stuff in your head so you can be aware. We miss it. The great things that we could be doing because Satan manipulates us. The Bible tells us that, 1 Peter 5. Satan, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. If he can get you in your head, if he can get you to be self-criticism, right? If he can get you to be negative, you will be useless. And he knows that. And that's his attack on you day in and day out. Be alert. Recognize your emotions when they take over. Be aware of the opportunity. Look, keep your eyes open. My, uh, my wife, Jody, has two doctoral degrees in mental health counseling. Uh, she's an overachiever. I have one doctoral degree. She has two. She had to beat me. Um, so the, the world calls this skill of being aware, they call it emotional intelligence. So Jody's written down 10 steps to help you rename your thoughts. I'm not going to go through them now but 10 steps to help you be more aware. There's a handout on all the communion tables uh, with those 10 steps. Feel free, you don't have to, but feel free to grab that. This, there's, nothing, there's a couple scriptures on there, but these are just teachings on how you can be more aware, some practical steps on how you can reframe your thinking so that you can be more aware. In 2008, I was CEO and founder of my first engineering firm. I had 100 employees in US and China and India. In 2008, the economic crash hit and we lost everything we owned, everything. We lost our business, we lost our house, we lost our cars, and we were about a million dollars in debt. I went from being several million dollars up to a million dollar in debt within two months because of the economic crash. 
it took me two years. It took us two years to get out of debt. And in, and in doing so, we moved to the Middle East. And we lived in Qatar, which is near Saudi Arabia, for a year. Um, and we did everything we could to make money again to try to, to, to get back on our feet. Uh, this is, you know, back in 2010 and 11. Uh, I had a three children, a wife, and I had no money. I had no car. I had no home. I barely had clothes. Uh, and I never imagined I would get there in my life. But those terrible circumstances led us to a life that I, I could have never imagined, the life I get to lead now, two biological children, 10 adopted children, a, success, a very successful business, an incredible church family that I have here. You know, and I thought about quitting during that time. I could have quit. The negative thinking in my head every day overwhelmed me. You, you failed. You you're, you're failed your family. You failed yourself, right? And, and, and I had to reframe What's the opportunity? What's God teaching me here? What do I need to learn? What's the lesson, right? And I had to reframe my thinking every moment. For a lot of us, in order to react like Jesus, we need to change the way we think. We got to change that thinking. And, and, and what, is the, what is the opportunity that God's bringing me? The second rule, not only do we have to be aware of ourselves and our own thinking, we need to pray for wisdom so that we see the needs around us. Different people need different things, right? In these passages, some people needed a rebuke, others needed to be chosen, others needed healing, teaching, or inspiration. Uh, when you react with all of your emotions, ask yourself, what does a person need? How can I best serve this person right now? Our youngest daughter, Zoe, we adopted. Uh, she's, uh, how old is she now? Seven? Seven. Yeah. It's hard. I've got 12 kids. Come on. Uh, I can't remember how old they all are. Um, so so she, she's seven, and we adopted her from the Philippines. Zoe's awesome. She's beautiful. She cries all the time, right? Just, just cries, right? And uh, we figured out very quickly that her crying was manipulated. Mani manipulation, right? Uh, and her manipulation cry was different than her real cry. She has two cries. She has the manipulation cry and the real cry. And her manipul manipulation cry is to get you to feel bad for her so that she doesn't get in trouble for the terrible things that she's just done. Uh, Zoe is a thief uh, and she steals everything, right? So uh, in school at home, and we're trying to help her not steal, which is, you know, not something the preacher usually has to work on, but yes. So, but then she cries to manipulate us and you want to just feel bad for her. Oh, honey, I know, you know we're, you're adopted and life is so difficult. And then she's like smiling on the side, right? She, it's just unbelievable how much a seven-year-old can manipulate you, right? And Jody have to be, and I have to be aware of what Zoe needs. Zoe in those moments doesn't need us to feel sorry for herself. She or for her. She doesn't need to be coddled. She needs us to hold her to righteous expectations. That's what she needs at that moment. She needs us to give her boundaries. She needs us to expect her to make good choices. She needs to be corrected and challenged and inspired. This week, as you go about your life, please remember how Jesus reacted to all these situations. I hope that it's burned in your brain and it'll really help you. Remember the two practical rules. Remember, remain aware of yourself right, and aware of others around you, and second, have wisdom to know what people need. If you are a true baptized believer of Jesus Christ, I want to challenge you to join me today. I want to challenge you. We need to decide to stop being so easy on ourselves. Many times a day, our reactions to our wife or husband or kids or coworkers or Facebook, many times a day, our reactions look nothing like Jesus at all. And we tell ourselves over and over, it's okay, because I'm bothered, or I'm frustrated, or that's just the way I am. Let me challenge you to not be so easy on yourself. 
God expects your reactions to be like Jesus. I want to challenge you this week to monitor the way you react to every situation that comes at you. Monitor the way you respond to people. Monitor the way you respond to your wife or your husband or your children. Monitor the responses that you post on Facebook. Monitor your tone when someone says something critical or nasty or negative to you. The great news is you'll get 10 chances a day. <laughs> at least. You'll have so many chances. You'll be like, I blew this one, but another one's coming in five minutes. Don't worry. Again, if every, we're wrapping up here. If anybody wants to study the Bible and learn more about Jesus, uh, I'd be happy to teach you. My wife, if, if you're a lady, uh, or the elders, we'd be happy to teach you the Bible. We do that all the time. Uh, sit down and go through some studies, so feel free to come up with us. Uh, but for all the rest of us, this is a time in our service when we celebrate communion. The bread represents the body of, of Christ and the, uh, that was sacrificed to us. The juice represents his uh, uh, blood that was poured out for our sins because none of us are perfect, right? And the only way that you're gonna that we can change our reactions is because of Jesus and because of the help of the Holy Spirit. That's it. Jesus' example uh, on the cross and the help of the Holy Spirit, and we can change. Today, as you take the communion, I want to challenge you to meditate and pray about your reactions. Uh, challenge, I want you to take a little time and pray to God, think about your reactions, be honest, right, with who you are, and say, God, I'm gonna be more like Jesus. In God's awesome and infinite wisdom. He created a plan to save the world that relied on your reactions. Isn't that scary? <laughs> but that was his plan. And it's awesome. Our reactions are important to God. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we are so humbled. We're so humbled that you chose our reactions as the plan to change the world and teach people about you. Man, it's, it's, it's humbling, God. And I pray that you'll be with us today and you'll challenge us to really monitor the way we react to our wives, our husbands, our girlfriends, uh, our, the people at work, God, the nasty situations, the posts on Facebook. I pray, God, that you'll give us strength. You'll give us the strength of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, that our reactions will be like Jesus, that we really will love people, that we will forgive them, that we will teach them, and that you'll use our reactions to really help people to know you. God, I pray for this communion. Thank you for the bread which represents your body and the juice that represents your blood. Thank you for forgiveness. We need it every minute of every day. And I pray, God, that you help us to be inspired this morning to leave here to really go out and make a difference with our reactions. Thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.